Don't try this at home. I almost always have that on before I get up here. Now I know why I do that. We are doing things a little bit differently tonight in that I am going to use a podium and I'm going to consult notes um, because of the nature of a couple of things I want to say. I want to make sure that I say them correctly. This is uh, the uh, monthly question and answer lesson that will typically be on the second Sunday night of the month, but because of camp, I moved it to the third Sunday night. We're going to deal with three things tonight. There was a great and fourth topic that I'm not going to be able to get to uh, because it deserves uh, a full attention all of its own. Uh, please continue to give me questions. I had questions uh, from uh, that came from little children all the way uh, up through uh, those who are a little bit more seasoned than that, and I, and I appreciate it. We're going to look at the Gospels at both ends, and then we're going to look at a topic uh, in the middle of that. So if you'd like to look in your Bibles, we're going to be flipping around to a couple of concepts that will be helpful. The first one came from Bible class, and one of the teachers passed this along to me. If you want to look in your Bibles in Luke chapter 22 and verse 45, this is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, as he is praying to the Father, in verse 44, we're very familiar with that part of the account. Jesus has been praying so fervently. Luke, the physician, uh, gives us great insight into what was happening with Jesus emotionally and physiologically. He is uh, in such an intense uh, mode of prayer that the sweat droplets were as blood. And uh, physicians who have weighed in on this would say that this was... Uh, a phenomenon known as hematidrosis, where the capillaries burst because of the intensity of the praying that Jesus was done and the sweat uh, was uh, intermingled with blood. All right, so we're familiar with that. But he comes back in verse 45, and it, and it says that he found the disciples sleeping from sorrow. And that's where the question comes, and that is, what does this mean? What's going on here? Why are the disciples sleeping from sorrow? That doesn't seem to be, you know, when we think about something that's so intense and so, uh, um, that has us so emotionally engaged, the very last thing that we think that we would do would be to fall asleep. Well, this has been an exhausting turn of events. Uh, where the sorrow comes from specifically, the text does not say, but there are some clues further up in the chapter. This, going back to the Last Supper, Jesus is beginning to talk about the things that are going to occur to him. And it's changing the point of view that these disciples had had, the apostles had had, about the nature of Jesus' ministry. They had thought that Jesus was going to come and establish David's throne again in Jerusalem. There would be world domination. They would throw off the Roman oppression. And now they're seeing from what Jesus says he's going to suffer he is about to, to go and undergo uh, a, a death. And so this has them very concerned. So if you look specifically in Luke chapter 22, I believe that there are some clues to that. If you want to go up further in the chapter, um, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 28, he says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And then in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have once turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so Peter's going to be one of those who are with Jesus in that uh, place apart from the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And that's a very heavy statement that Jesus has just laid on him. Of course, he's denying that it's going to happen, and yet we know that it's going to occur. If you look down in verse 37, he says to them about this time, right before they go into the garden, For I tell you this, uh, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressions, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment." So Jesus has been telling them, Mark shows us that over and over again, he is saying that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be crucified. He's telling them plainly, but now in this moment it seems uh, closer to fruition. They're even asking about weapons that they can take into the garden and Jesus uh, allows that and so forth as they go. So the sorrow seems to be from this dawning realization on them that Jesus was not going to fight the Romans. He was going to allow the Jews and the Romans to hang him on the cross. They were so overcome with that and the other emotions, our best deduction is that that was why they were sleeping from sorrow. But it is very astute in that uh, they don't see a clue in the text. The, the young lady that asked this question, and so we've got to try to piece that together. Okay. Completely different from the other two questions, but I wanted to get that out of the way. The second question is was a little bit longer, and I'm going to try to condense this and hopefully very faithfully uh, address what is meant in the question. And to do that, I, I suppose the best way to frame the question is explain the difference between non-institutional churches of Christ and, as we might be referred to by those good brethren, institutional churches of Christ. What we might refer to as mainstream churches of Christ. Now, there are a lot of different subcategories of those that we would place into the non-institutional category. I can't deal with all of those tonight. That might be a Bible class for a quarter, although I don't know that that's a topic of discussion for that length of time. But there are really three broad categories. And this matters for the reasons that I will show you here in just a moment. But the, the three main issues, as best as I can discover them, are these. Number one, is it scriptural for churches to cooperate together in the support of a work of benevolence or an evangelistic work like preaching the gospel? Can two or more churches join together to work together in the support of a work. That's one of the main issues that separates us from those that... Uh, and we'll, t- we'll, t- we'll identify the terms of why we say non-institutional. That'll need some de- definition. A second area of contention or, or, or difference is... Is it scriptural for us to take funds from the church treasury to support uh, or to give to non-Christians or to give to individuals that is the individual Christian's responsibility? Can the church, out of its treasury, support an institution like an orphan's home? And then the third issue that does not seem at all related, and I'll try to tie it together if I can, is, is it sinful for Christians to use the church building to eat a common meal, a fellowship meal, if you will? Now, as we try to unpackage all of this and look through it, there's going to be two words that I want you to keep in mind. They are very important words. They are words that will come up in a discussion of institutional versus non-institutional approach to 
uh, the work that we do as a church. And that's the word authority and autonomy. Those are vital words. We have got to have authority for everything that we do. And if we don't have authority for doing that, then it is not permitted for us to do that. So keep that concept in mind. Autonomy is the idea, it literally means self-law or self-rule. Every congregation is to be autonomous. That is, a church down the road can't tell us how we ought to uh, govern ourselves, who ought to be our elders, who, uh, what works we ought to be engaged in. And so each congregation is autonomous, self-ruled. Why is that so important and how did it become an issue that has divided brethren? Well, we have to go back to some uh, problems that occurred in the Lord's church over a century ago. Uh, In fact, some of these things go back to not long after the efforts to restore New Testament Christianity began not only in this country, but in Scotland and in England and various places in the world at that time. It's not the first restoration movement. Keep that in mind. It is the latest. uh, it, It is a restoration movement that reached across several nations. But there have been men and women who have been seeking to restore New Testament Christianity since the first century as departures were taking place. So with that in mind, there were a couple of problems that began to uh, emerge among the Lord's church. One was a matter of authority. It happened in the state of Kentucky first. I don't know if you know that or not. But uh, an instrument of music was introduced. was not a common practice. And in the case of what happened near Lexington, Kentucky, what happened was that the singing was so awful from their point of view that uh, an instrument known as a melodeon was used at first to get the pitch, but then within the assembly. And brethren opposed its usage in that congregation, and congregations began to grapple with whether or not it was permissible to add to what God had commanded for the worship of the church. It was not done at all, really, throughout the religious world until uh, relatively recent in time. And in the great awakening that happened in the early 1800s, it began to spread into other places. Uh, those in denominational circles that are scholarly, men like the, the Wesley brothers and Adam Clark and others, strongly opposed its usage. But it began to grow in its, in its use. And so brethren said, we've got to make sure that we understand whether or not we have authority for this. And as they began to study the uh, idea of authority, a good way to put it is that there are two types of authority, two ways the Bible authorizes, specifically and generically. If God specifies something, we're not at liberty to generalize. But if God is not specified, then we have authority to do that generally. And I'll illustrate that in just a moment. When one plays an instrument, they have now added a new category to what God specifies in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 where we are to sing, we are to speak, we are to teach, we are to admonish. God tells us what He wants in our worship. And thus, to add a different category is to do so without God's authority. We we're, have specific commands for what God wants us to do. The same is true of the Lord's Supper. The Lord instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 in the, in the parallel versions, and He instituted the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. He did not say you cannot have hamburgers and Coca-Cola to commemorate Him in the Lord's Supper. He didn't have to. He specified what He did want. 
Someone has said the Bible would be an unwieldy book if it set about for God to tell us, I want you to do this, but I don't want you to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. He doesn't have to do that. He's told us. And so that began to be a problem, a problem of lacking authority for what was done in this particular instance in worship and song. Another issue that came about was the advent, that is the rise of the missionary society. It goes back to about 1850. Alexander Campbell was the first president of the Missionary Society. And the Missionary Society was set up as an organization to do the work of the church. The church's work is to evangelize. A missionary society was set up in order to do that particular work. And what became a problem was, is that churches that sent money to the missionary society gave it to this body, and this body had its own delegates from congregations, and they made decisions, they ruled over the church. Those sending churches had no input into the decisions that were being made. And so this missionary society, also known as a parachurch organization, an organization that exists to do the work that the church exists to do, was a problem. And so brethren said, this institution is... It's not a scriptural organization. It takes away the church's autonomy. Now, there's a whole lot more to be said about that, but that's just preliminary to what happened in the 20th century. A couple of historic uh, points for you to help us to understand where we're going with this. From the early part of the Restoration Movement in the United States in the early 1800s, from almost the beginning of that movement in churches uh, of our Lord in the United States, there were orphan homes that were established and congregations supported those institutions, various congregations. And then in the 1940s, as World War II was going on, a congregation known as the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, desired to send a missionary team to Germany after the war was over. They alerted uh, some other congregations of their desire to do that and because the magnitude of that team was so great, They needed help financially in doing that. And so other congregations decided they would support that work that Broadway was sponsoring. And there were brethren who thought that this may not be a scriptural way to do things. So uh, along those uh, same lines or at that same time, there was a a concern about uh, in the 60s, there was uh, a focus in religion generally that a church's central purpose was to take care of the social needs of the community, to feed the poor and to help those who were in need. And it it almost eclipsed, it seemed, uh, other things that the church was to be doing. In addition to that, uh, the idea of building a church building from the church funds that included a kitchen or included a designated place or a a function of the building where a common meal could be eaten was opposed. Now let me make this very clear. It is not wrong for one to have the conviction to support a mission work or a benevolent work as individuals or as a single congregation. That's an acceptable arrangement as 2 Corinthians 8, 13 and 14 would show us. It is not wrong for one to oppose the support as a congregation in their autonomy, to support uh, orphans without doing so from the church treasury. That's an okay decision as long as that's being done. 
It is certainly okay if one's conscience forbids them from doing so for an individual Christian to say, I'm not going to eat a meal in the church building because it violates my conscience. Romans 14.23 would say that if that's the case, they should not do it because whatever is a faith is, is not a faith, is sin. The problem that we have and where division occurred is when brethren who opposed that as a possible arrangement decided that it was wrong for uh, it to be done the way that we're, we're going to talk about tonight. Now, why is this a, a, an issue that we're taking time with here tonight? Nine percent of members of Churches of Christ identify as non-institutional. Fifteen percent of the congregations of Churches of Christ identify in some way as non-institutional. I'll make it a little bit more personal. And I don't think I have to for a, a lot of you. But there's one website that exists that's operated by a brother who would identify himself as non-institutional that says there are 233 Non-institutional congregations in the state of Kentucky, eight of them have a Bowling Green address. How many of you know somebody who goes to one of those eight non-institutional churches of Christ? Almost every one of you. And so we've got to do some things. We've got to, to talk about the idea that we do sometimes have generic authority to do something. Let's go back to the singing for just a moment. If you sing and play or dance or add some other category to that in the worship and music in church, you have, you have violated the specific authority of what God has said. But tonight, Charlie led us in singing and he used a PowerPoint. You don't have to use a PowerPoint. You can use a songbook. You can sing from memory. You can use four-part harmony. Or you can sing in unison. You can chant as the early church did. You can sing antiphonally where one sings a phrase and uh, the audience sings back in response. Responsorial is as it's called. But when you're done with all of that, you have still only sung. God has specified that we sing, but doesn't specify those other things. And so long as what we do does not add to what God has commanded, then it is permissible. It is authorized generically. Let me give you another example. With regard to the Great Commission, we are told to go make disciples. But we are not told that there is a single way to do that. If, if Jesus had said, go on your horse and make disciples, then that would exclude any other way of doing that. But we can go in our cars. We can go on foot. We can use the Internet. We can use any of those particular ways. We're authorized to do so generically. So long as the, what we choose helps us to fulfill the specific command that God has given to us. And I believe at some point, sometimes, there's a failure to distinguish between how God authorizes that has caused this schism among us. So let's, let's talk about those things, three things, very quickly. And this is where it, I want to be very careful in case this is uh, played at any other time in any other place that I'm heard very well. All right, so number one. The sponsoring church is not the same thing as a missionary society. The missionary society collected funds from churches and was then in charge of sending out the missionaries. It selected the missionaries and it determined the amount of their support. The missionaries reported to the society, not to the churches that supported them. And delegates from the various congregations had power to make decisions on various issues and to bind it on all the churches that were involved in the missionary society. So a missionary society is an unauthorized organization doing the work that God gave the church to do and it had power over the local church. 
That's not a biblical model for how things are to be done. The sponsoring church method is a different thing. It is an authorized method of doing the work that God has given the the church to accomplish. We're to preach the gospel. We are to take the gospel to every creature. The supporting church is simply doing the work that God gave it to do through another congregation. A sponsoring congregation is one that says, this is an evangelistic work that we want to be involved in. And so we're going to take it on ourselves that we're going to oversee, we're going to handle uh, the, the, the funds for this. The supporting congregations say, we want to preach the gospel in that particular location through that particular person, and we're going to send our funds to that sponsoring church so that we can fulfill our obligation to preach the gospel through that church. In that arrangement, the supporting congregation does not lose its autonomy. It has input. As you know, reports, we have congregations, uh, works that we support. We have works that we have overseen or have sponsored. And in that arrangement, every congregation that's involved gets communication has the ability to communicate directly with that work. You know the work that you're involved in, you know how much is being given to that particular missionary, and you can maintain a relationship with them. But here's the important part of that. There are biblical examples of churches cooperating together to accomplish the work of the church. I'll just give you this very briefly. The churches of Galatia and Corinth cooperated together for the collection for the saints that we read about in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Oftentimes when there's a table talk before the giving of our means, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 will be the passages that are read. And that pattern shows us that a collection of churches, different congregations, pooled their resources together and those funds were sent by a congregation or by an individual to take care of the needs of another congregation. That's the same pattern that we're following. Macedonia and Achaia cooperated together for the poor saints in Jerusalem according to Romans chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. You can also go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 18 and 19 where several churches cooperated together to support a man preaching the gospel. And so the model of churches cooperating and sending them through one congregation like Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30 is biblical. Now, one would say that if the pattern is so well established, then why is it opposed? And I believe it's a failure to understand the principle of autonomy that is not violated as it was with the missionary society. It's seen as a parallel to the missionary society, and it's not. Number two, orphan homes are not a missionary society. The missionary society was an organization that existed separate from the church that did the work of the church. Evangelism is a work of the church. The home is not a direct work of the church. It can be supported, the home can, but the home is a different institution than the church. The home predated the church by thousands of years. Go back to the Garden of Eden. That's where the home was established. The church was established on the day of Pentecost in the first century A.D. And there's more than one arrangement for a home. Here's what I mean by that. A home... A nuclear family, as we often think of it, is a, as a father and a mother and children. But if one of those parents die, and it's one of those parents with those children, it's still a home. If both of those parents die, and those children have to be raised by relatives, it's still a home. If it's non-relatives who take in those children and raise them, it's still a home. 
There's not one pattern for the home. And so an orphan's home does not have to be under the oversight of an eldership. It can be under a board of directors because they are, it is a different arrangement for a home. And the church can support that. And we see that from passages like 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. You remember you had the widows that were there and uh, there were certain ones that were to be on the roll. What that means is, is there were certain uh, widows who met certain qualifications who the church could support from the church treasury to take care of them. Now there are two passages that are often used by our, our dear brethren in the non-institutional persuasion to say that we should not do this. One is Galatians 6 and verse 10. And both of these passages stem from their thinking that this is an individual's responsibility. You want to take care of an orphan? That's fine. Do so out of your own pocket. But not from the church treasury. And one of the passages that they often use is Galatians 6 and verse 10. As you have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto the household of those who are of the household of the faith. What they say is here is God telling individuals, as you go about every day and you see somebody in need, focus first on brethren and then also the rest of all people. Problem is that Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2 is written not to individuals. It is written to the churches of Galatia. And in Galatians 6 and verse 6, in the very context in which that passage is found, the Apostle Paul says those who uh, receive of the word are to share with those that give it. What he is saying is that individuals who benefit from the teaching, the preaching of the word, are to, to pay the preacher. Well, how does that happen? What happens is individuals give their contribution into the treasury. And then the treasurer takes of that and writes one check to the preacher. If one who is taught the word communicates to the one who teaches the word in that way and it's done so collectively and our brethren of the non-institutional persuasion do that to support their preachers, the question is what makes it illegitimate to do the same with regard to the benevolent needs that exist? Another passage is James chapter 1 and verse 27. In James 1.27 it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the orphans in their afflictions and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So the question is, how did the early church visit those like orphans and widows? Well, in the very beginning of the church, when the church only existed in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, do you remember what happened? Everybody who had means... Uh, came and sold what they had and they gave it to the Jerusalem church and they dispensed it to those as they had need. Remember Barnabas did that and that was what was wrong with Ananias and Sapphira. They uh, lied about how much they gave. That was the sin, but the brethren were giving money for the good of those in need. Acts chapter 6, 1 and following, the Grecian widows, they were not being supported in the daily giving out of food. And so the church took from those contributions and they took care of those who had need. All right, so one other thing, very quickly, is what about eating in the church building? Is it sinful to eat in the church building? To prove that it is sinful to eat in the church building, you've got to prove at least four things, I believe. That number one, the church building itself is sacred and for one purpose only. That number two, social meals are carnal in nature and do not have spiritual uh, purposes. That number three, that the Bible specifies everything that church contributions can be used for. And number four, that the only reason that the church building exists is to participate in the five acts of worship. But I believe we're going to have a very difficult time establishing that.
Because number one, the early Christians ate together for meals that were carnal meals. That is, they served their body, but they had spiritual purposes. They ate their meals from house to house with gladness and singleness of heart. It was how they built up their fellowship. And so when we sit down together and eat a meal, it's not just to satisfy our hunger. We grow together. When you eat a meal together, it brings you closer in a way that you can't do otherwise. And the early church did that. They didn't have church buildings until about the 3rd century. And so they were meeting together in people's homes, which definitely had kitchens, and they were meeting in public places that they didn't own. Number two, no scripture specifically justifies a church paying for things like a baptistry or a water fountain or restrooms or cleaning supplies or electricity or computers or paper or even Bible class books. Does it mean that they're illegitimate? It just means that there's not a specific passage that says that you must do these things. We have the authority to do those things for various reasons because it accomplishes the work of the church. And again, what what scripture justifies a church building? It's an expediency. There's generic authority for that. To boil this down, it is not wrong to have these convictions. It is wrong for us to press that, and it's wrong that we should ever be divided over that. Perhaps what needs to happen is, is that we need to sit down together and see if we can't fellowship with one another and agree that there's more than one way that these things can be done. That we don't have to bind a specific method if God authorizes us to do those things as I hope in this short period of time we've been able to establish. Here's the thing. If we were set up for this or whatever, give me some follow-up questions. I, may, I don't want to be as clear as mud. I want to make sure that you understand uh, what we're discussing. If it has raised some questions, send it to me by email, and we'll deal with it in July. All right, one last thing that we'll deal with, and then the lesson is yours. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon has one central purpose. That purpose is outlined for us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Jesus lays it out. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The entire sermon revolves around that central idea. The Pharisees were the religious elite and whatever they said went and the people listened to them. And Jesus comes along and he says there are a lot of problems with uh, them. He talks more about that in Matthew chapter 23. And so Jesus is going through and showing what true righteousness looks like. Matthew 7 is the climax of the sermon. Jesus has just talked about what we talked about at camp last week, the problem of worry. And then he changes the subject. But remember, the overall subject is true righteousness. What true righteousness is not is judging others based on what we see as their faults. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what measure that you judge, you'll be measured again. By that standard of measure, you'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus talking about here in this particular part? Jesus is focusing in very specifically on a hypercritical religious person. A hypercritical person who is looking at the faults of others and are so focused on what they are doing that's wrong while ignoring that they themselves have fault. 
And so Jesus is talking about uh, uh, judging faults of others. Now, what does that extend to? What does that include? What does that exclude? Is Jesus saying that we cannot make righteous judgment of what others do? Well, that's why it's helpful for us to stay with the sermon. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is calling on us to make a judgment, isn't he? How do you know who is, in this metaphor here, a dog or not? How do you know who is a swine or not? Then he talks about prayer and the golden rule and how we interact with one another. But then he returns again in verse 13 and 14. He says that there are two ways. There are two gates. And there's one that's wide and there's one that's narrow. There's many on the broad way. There are few on the narrow way. Jesus is wanting us to use our powers of discernment to look and to uh, be able to determine who's in what category. And so he follows that up by talking about false prophets. He wants us to be aware, to discern, that there are those that fall into the category of false prophets. How do we know who is and who is not? Jesus says that essentially in verse 15 through 20, you'll know them by their fruits. There's a good fruit, there's a corrupt fruit. The corrupt fruit is to be cut off, thrown into the fire, and so he says, by your fruits that you'll know them. Then Jesus gets more specific. The rest of the sermon focuses on eternity. In verse 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that at the judgment day, there are going to be those who profess to follow him, who called him Lord, who Jesus will say he never knew. Well, why? Why is he going to be able to say, Depart from me, you curse into everlasting fire? Because they said to him, Lord, Lord, but they did not do the will of the Father. And then he closes the sermon by talking about two categories of people. There are those who build their lives on the rock, and there are those who build their lives on the sand. Who is who? The one who builds their lives on the rock or those who hear these sayings of his and does them. Who are those who build on the sand? Those who hear his sayings and do not do them. They're going to be lost. So how does that relate to you and me? Jesus has the ability, he shows us how he sees. But he is also helping us to be able to discern. Ultimately, listen, make this clear. Who is going to be on the throne of judgment at the judgment day? Just Jesus. And I found myself in some very sticky situations where someone's wanting me to determine the eternal destiny of somebody. What I can say is that there will never be a judge more fair more loving, more righteous than Jesus. But that does not mean that we can say that Jesus is going to say one thing in his word and when we get to the judgment, he's going to do something else. Now, whether that's his prerogative, I suppose, but he's got to be consistent with his nature and be perfect. And if he gives us a word and he says, I'm going to hold you accountable to X, and then we all get to the judgment and he says, no, 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 that's okay, I'm going to give you Y as well, then that's not a perfect God. And so he gives us what is right, what he will hold us accountable to. And all we can know is what he's revealed to us. And so there are those in religion who have followed something other than what Christ has said in his word. In John twelve forty eight, Jesus says, He that rejects me and my word has one that uh, judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. 
It's very difficult for us to think about, and I believe every one of us here tonight may have somebody that we love who has not obeyed what the New Testament says in order to be a New Testament Christian. The only kind of Christian that we read about in the, in the Bible. No uh, other brand than what Jesus has told us in His Word. While the Lord is going to be the one that ultimately judges that, He's given us the material. If He doesn't want us to utilize that in order to help other people that are lost, in Luke 15 He describes what that looks like, then the Great Commission really makes no sense to us. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority is given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations. Teach them what? Well, it would seem to include things like what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. To let them know His will so that they can obey it. Some will, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, most will not. What is the kind of judgment taking place in Matthew 7, 1 through 5? It's the kind of judgment that we can very easily fall prey to. It's easier for me to see your faults, your poor priorities, your wrong choices. And when I'm doing that, I'm not in a position to look at my own. Disciples don't behave that way. That's not true righteousness. We're circumspect. We look at ourselves. We try to make sure that what we do as our, our main line priority is to make sure that we're living the right kind of influential lives. We're salt, we're light. And then help others through our example and our teaching to do the same. So, I'll make this promise to you. The next time, I will make sure that the question and answer sermon is not this long. Um, maybe I will only address one or two things instead of three. I just Three-point sermon, three-point question and answer. But please give me those. I would love for us to have the ability. I want to know what's on your mind. I want to know what it is that you're concerned about and what can help you to live a better Christian life. I'm, I try to, to find sermons to do that, but you can help me by continuing to share those questions. One that we'll deal with next time, and it might have made sense to do this in June, with this uh, being the, the month designated as it is, is I have a question about LGB, LGBTQ issues and transgender issues. Um, and I, I will look at that next month. That may take a lot of the time, but if you have a short question, I'll try to answer that too. It may be that you have a, a need to address in your own spiritual life. It may be that you need to obey the gospel, to respond to the great grace of Jesus by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of sins, and being baptized. Maybe it is as a child of God that there are things in your life that you need to change, that you need to repent of sin. If we can help you with that, we would love to do so even right now as we stand and sing.